I was in a coma for six weeks while the doctors told my wife I was going to die. When I woke up, she told me the most fantastic story. My team kept running the business without me. Freelancers reached out to my team and said, we will do whatever it takes as long as Craig's in the hospital. I consider that the greatest accomplishment in my career. My name is Craig Andrews, and this is the Leaders and Legacies podcast, where we talk to leaders creating an impact beyond themselves. At the end of today's interview, I'll tell you how you can be the next leader featured on this show. Today, I want to welcome Glenn Polis. He is the co-founder, vice president, and general manager of Gap Wireless. With over three decades of experience in sales, he has developed a successful strategy system by spending thousands of hours in the field or on the phone with customers and working with uh, salespeople in several successful companies. Glenn, welcome to Leaders and Legacies. Hi, Craig. Thanks so much for having me today. You know, this has been an exciting interview. I've been looking forward to it because, um, you know, I come from the wireless world. I spent, you know, ever, uh, I spent 15 years there uh, before I moved on. And, you know, in the green room, we were talking about many companies that we both uh, knew, people that we both knew. And it's really fun to reconnect with that. Um, could you, I mean, give some folks some, uh, a little bit on your background. You you, sure. you start two companies. Who what were they? What yeah. did they do? Sure, sure. So uh, yeah, I started my career actually as a government worker, an electronic technician working for the Canadian uh, Weather Service, Environment Canada is what we call it. And um, up here, and I was working on some weather stations and helping to fix some electronic gadgets and gizmos. And one day my boss pulled me aside and said, uh, you don't really fit the profile we're looking for in the government. And uh, I think he was alluding to the fact that I was maybe working too fast or accomplishing too many tasks per unit amount of time. And uh, he said, you would really thrive in sales, right? And so in 1985-86 timeframe, um, I uh, I reached out to looking for a job as a in the technical field and ended up landing a job as a technical sales rep. And um, I did that job and for uh, from 86 to 91. And um, it was sort of just prior to me turning 30. And I approached my bosses and I said, I saw, you know, how much money they were making running this sales business and how lucrative it was. The margins were really good. And I thought like, and, you know, they got paid no matter which salesman sold. The other salesman only got paid when the salesman sold, right? And I thought, yeah, I'd much rather, you know, be the owner than the just the salesman, right? So I approached them with an idea of, around this newfangled technology, right? And I said, I'm sure this is, you know, this is going to be good. And why don't we spin off a division and I'll focus on this little piece of technology and you guys can keep your core business and still own a piece of this new business. And I'll get to be an entrepreneur before I'm 30 and everything will be great. Right. And the president said, oh, that's never going to work. And some stuff like that. He said, you know, maybe bring me in your plan tomorrow and uh, we'll go over it and I'll show you. You're probably better just sticking to your knitting here and uh, staying with us and blah, 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 et cetera. Right. And so the next day I brought in my resignation letter instead and yeah. handed it over. Now I had forgotten a couple of things. One, I'd only been married six days. So, and I forgot to tell my wife I was quitting. So I had to go home and tell the wife, Oh, by the way, I'm quitting and I'm starting a new business. Right. 
And, um, and so I did do that. Right. And of course the technology, it never went anywhere. Right. It was, uh, it was totally fangled. Uh, it was a cell phone. Right. And I mean, who, who, who needs a cell phone, right? Like in 1991, right. Who would have thought, right. And, um, but yeah, let let me, let me pause you there because I, I think there's some perspective. I mean, there are people who never knew a time when there weren't multiple cell phones in the house. Right. Right. What was it like back then? Well, you know, it's funny. One of the chapters in my book is called Never Fax the Facts or Ship the Shit, right? And I mean, people are like, what are you mean faxes? Nobody uses faxes. And I said, well, in 1986 or 87, just after I got that job, we went from teletype, this typing machine we had, to a fax machine. And the whole world changed. And in 88, I think I got my first... uh, Motorola brick phone, you know, and um, then a car, you know, uh, one of those stationary car phones. And of course, I was the only one of my friends that had a car phone. And, um, you know, and, you know, who would have ever thought it would have, it would go to where, where it got to, right. And I remember when the Nokia 80, 90s, I can't remember the model number, but then it was the very, very popular Nokia port, little portable handset, Love that phone. And uh, it was the one with the three digit texting, right? Where you could text blindly. Yeah. And because um, as long as you remember, you know, like E was double tap on that, all that stuff. Right. But um, yeah, it was, it was interesting watching the the mobile phone grow. And um, I was lucky because I was a salesman in the mobile wireless business that, that always had a cell phone. But, you know, so many of people are like, oh no, don't call me on the cell phone. Only call me on the landline. It's too expensive. And you know, the minutes and the this and the that. And of course now, I mean, it's, you know, I, uh, I, I called, uh, I called my carrier. I went to Europe for a few weeks this summer and, you know, just went country to country to country to country using my own phone number, data, everything. And, you know, my, um, now you can roam the world with a cell phone and, uh, using your at home rates. And it's amazing. Like it's, uh, and frankly, I love it, but, uh, yeah. So it's been interesting. You know, when I worked for Ericsson in the in the late 90s, I remember the uh, management saying that they expected the saturation rate of cell phones to be 50%. That meant one out of every two people would have a cell right. phone. Yeah. And their goal was to get to that point where one out of every two people had a cell phone. Right. And we passed that years ago. Oh, yeah, for sure. But yeah. this, I mean, you're talking about a time that was even before that. You know, it was. Oh, yeah. It, it, you had to be, you had to be either a businessman with a very nice expense account, yeah, or enormously wealthy to have a cell phone. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, like our phone bills were over a thousand dollars a month, kind of thing, right? And uh, yeah, it was. Uh, and I was fortunate that my employer, and then of course I had to own the company, so I paid my own phone bill. But I mean, always had one, and um. I have the same phone number that I, I can't remember the exact year I got the phone. It was 87, 88, something like that. Um, but the phone number that I got from, uh, it was at the time it was Cantel, which became Rogers in Canada, a very big cell phone company. Um, and I have poured it over now. I'm actually with TELUS, but uh, I've had the same phone number since day one. Right. And the, I'm this like, sort of this like bastion of safety that everyone who knows me knows well everyone has glenn's phone number memorized right because it's never changed in 30 years right so all my kids you know who's getting called if someone needs to get bailed out right yeah. everybody else their cell phone numbers change and nowadays 
cell phone numbers are this random collection of digits where, you know, like they, every three days they make up a new area code. Right. And, um, you know, before, you know, everyone like in Toronto is four, one, six, right. Or the six as, as uh, Drake would say. Right. And, uh, you know, in the suburbs were nine Oh fives and, you know, everyone knows that Texas, I think it's like two, one, four, and, you know, all these areas, you just know it by their area codes, but now all those area codes are, you know, there's so many other supplementary area codes because of all the SIM cards in play, right? And, um, but yeah, who would have thought you said one out of every two people. Now pe people have like four or five SIMs per person, right? Like they got their right. iPad has a SIM, my iWatch has a SIM, um, you know, my phone has a SIM and, uh, and I have a data modem too, right? So me, I have four SIMs, I guess, right? And um, it's incredible. Yeah, it's it's been a wild shift. I mean, it's and the the cool thing is you were way back. I mean, you were ahead of me. You know, I I got my first cell phone in '95, and so right. you're what seven eight years ahead of me on that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in the '80s, and mine was in the late late '80s, like '87 or '88, and uh, yeah. yeah, and it was um, the first one was the. <laughs> car that was the fixed phone then i got the bag phone it wasn't the other way around right and um i had that portable thing and i thought i was like you know i don't know what i thought i was james bond or something right with this like you know three this i don't know how many pounds it was three four five pound brick with the with the phone attached to the giant battery and all analog you know technology you know blasting three watts you know uh of rf energy out you know without even thinking about it right and um yeah so times have definitely changed that's for sure so and i cut you off earlier so you you went off and you started this business you know this yeah yeah so i started the business and um the uh and we were based we were basically selling to people that were developing products for the mobile wireless business so in canada companies like nortel later blackberry rim companies like that and also to the carriers themselves, selling them products that help them to build out the network, right? So the only thing I never really sold were cell phones, right? And uh, we sold into people that were doing handset development. We sold people that were doing antennas, antenna developments. We sold antennas. We sold cable connectors, all sorts of combiners and uh, things that go up on the tower. When you look up on a cell phone tower, that's everything I still do to this day. That's what we sell is all that stuff. When you're in a stadium and you look up, you see all those antennas that are helping to propagate signals. So you're getting, you know, full coverage in a stadium. Uh, we sell those systems. We sell the antennas. Um, yeah, that's all the stuff we do. And uh, we help make wireless work. And we say there's a lot of wires and wireless. Yeah. And uh, and we sell wires, right? And um, so let's 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 get a couple things on the record. Does 5G cause COVID? Definitely not. Definitely not. And if you go to my website, you can download our newsletter that covers the uh, 5G health report. It's very highly downloaded uh, doc, uh, uh, article and series of articles that we had written and um, with a lot of experts and things like that. And it does not uh, does not cause cancer, does not cause COVID. Definitely not. The the cancer one, I understand because there's always been links, but the, the one that really surprised me was when they started saying it yeah. caused COVID. Yeah. Yeah, I mean those the uh, there's also tin hats available, tin foil hats available. I mean, <laughs> but you, uh, yeah, I, 
I mean, I do, I do at a, at a base level, I understand the conspiracy theories behind it all and what have you, but I mean, that's not one that I buy into myself. Right. Um, you might, you might get me to talk about the, the moon landing or some other things, but, uh, COVID from 5g, that one, definitely not. No, that one, uh, so true story, the CEO of Ericsson, one, and for those that don't know, Ericsson, major, major wireless company, provides a lot of the infrastructure, um, built the very first Bluetooth radio, uh, which I saw um, before you know, the, the original prototype. Wow. And uh, the CEO of Ericsson had to put out an announcement to the entire company saying, no, uh, 5G does not cause COVID. Right. Oh, wow. Eh? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's just scary when the head of a technology company has to tell his technology employees, no, 5G doesn't cause COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was sort of a unique time with a unique set of fears. And, and I mean, every, every fear had to be quelled at that time. So there was just no, no choice in the matter. Right. Cause I mean, he probably had to address all sorts of other fears at the same time and how they were going to handle social distancing and who gets to work from home and. You know, and that was very interesting. I mean, our company, we we couldn't shut down during COVID because all my administrative staff went home, but I had to stay, keep the warehouse open. Our warehouse people had to come to work every day because all of our customers, uh, which were carriers that had to provide you with, you know, uh, cell phone signal without fail, needed us to stay open so we could supply them with the products they used to build the network and keep it running, right? So we we were we were mandated you know, as a essential service to stay open. And so, um, yeah, throughout COVID, I, uh, I sat in the office here, I usually had one person, and uh, everyone else sort of worked from home, right. But I came in pretty much every day through COVID to keep the warehouse open and keep those guys in the back supported. So yeah, let's talk about that from a, um, you know, from a leadership perspective, that was, that was a hard time for a lot of people. And I, you know, what were some of the, what were some of the issues that you faced from your employees? Uh, some of the challenges where, you know, where did they need leadership from you and how did you kind of guide them through that time? Yeah. So I remember in the beginning, you know, um, the one thing that I, I remember the first, the first sort of, there was a kind of an inkling and then maybe it was the next day I had play tickets to a play and it was still fine. There was no uh, impact on the event. But, but the information coming to me on my phone, you know, news and whatever, during that play, I remember on the break calling my business partner and saying, you know, tomorrow we need to issue a statement to the staff um, explaining to them what our COVID strategy will be. And, you know, he kind of took at the time, you know, it was new to everybody, right? So, but he was like, you know, aren't you blowing it a little bit out of proportion? And and I'm like, I'm not saying we have to shut our shut our doors or anything. At this point, I think it, there were rumblings of Italy closing down or whatever. But, but I'm like, no. I said, like, what we need to do is we need to provide ongoing information to our people so that they know how to govern themselves, right? We can't like keep our cards close to our chest during such a thing. And to me, it's going to be all about, you know, we're going to be looked back upon the information that we shared to our people and how consistent was it and what basis were do we you know, did we uh, issue our, our policies and procedure, right? So we we tried to default to government sort of recommendations throughout the throughout the pandemic, obviously. I mean, in the end, that's what everyone did. But, um, you know, I was like, what's the Ontario government doing? And what's the Canadian government saying? And what have you? And then 
But the biggest thing for me was this continuous sharing of the information with our staff. So there was no question in their mind. And then, um, you know, there was a lot of pushback from in 2019. I changed our ERP system, our accounting system. And I said, we're going paperless. We're not going to kill any more trees. And everyone's like, oh, well, well, it'll never work. And they were all grumbling. And they had to learn this new system where there was no paper gets printed, right? And obviously, when we do a packing slip on the box, that's that actually does get a piece of paper. But but I mean, we used to have these files that would travel around the building from all the different, the order entry, the quoting department, the you know quality department, everyone would check in stamps. And we had this whole system of stamps that everyone had on their desk, right? So, and we go stamp, 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 stamp. And we'd stamp all these file folders and all that was gone, right? And like, how are we going to do with all the stamps? And a year later, COVID came and I was able to go across the street to Best Buy and buy a bunch of laptops and send them. With the day I decided everyone was going home, the next day they were at home working without, without even blinking of an eye because we didn't need to be in the office because our accounting system was in the cloud. Right. And as long as you had the VPN access and you had a laptop, I went out and got everyone a laptop and that didn't already have one. Right. These were office desk workers. Right. And sent them all home. And it was like, and it's like, wow, going paperless. That was genius. Right. I'm like, you didn't say that a year ago, but, uh, but it really ended up being one of the, one of the great moves that we did was going paperless to allow us to send people home so quickly. Right. And, um, you know, and we operated throughout the entire, you know, melee of changes that came in Canada. There were lots of comings and goings, openings and closings and, you know, lockdown, not lockdown, you know, um, and um, we were able to operate flawlessly throughout that whole time, which was great, you know. You know, and I think that's one of the tough things about leadership is there's a part where you have to make people constantly uncomfortable but you have to right. make them comfortable with being yeah. uncomfortable, which sounds yeah. like what you did. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's often about the, you know, I often get asked about, you know, leadership or whatever. And I said, you know, leadership is making a decision, it, it, you know, it, even during difficult times, right? Like that's your job. Fundamentally, that is your, your, your main job is making decisions. And during stressful times, during any time, and and then you know making the decision and then deploying along the lines of the decision that you've made and then you know obviously hoping that you've made the right decision but your people will follow you pretty much regardless as long as you make as long as you're definitive and you know you explain to them what you're doing why you're doing it you make the decision you stick to it they're looking for someone to make that decision and for someone to rally behind right and you know uh i guess Fortunately, throughout my career, most of my decisions have been right enough that, you know, most things have t- turned out successfully. Not everything, of course, has been the right decision. And um, but that whole business about making decisions, um, you know, that's really what defines a leader. And as I explained to some of the manager- people coming into management, I said, look, if you're a manager and you're doing your job perfectly and all your staff is trained, you shouldn't have anything to do other than make decisions, right? Because every one of your staff is perfectly trained and you're just managing to the exception, right? Oh, the machine blew up. What do I do? Okay, well, I'll call this guy here. He's a 24-hour service. Get him in, get a quote. Okay, you know, or whatever. We lost this order. What are we going to do? Well, let's talk to the customer, figure out why we lost the business. You know, whatever, whatever whatever the problem is, you have to sort of manage to that and, and come up with uh, strategies and ideas and decisions around it. 
But other than that, you shouldn't have to do anything, right? And um, and so that that's when I always often know when things are going well, when I'm kind of might have a moment of boredom, right? Where there's nothing to do. There's no chaos, right? Uh, at that moment, there's no drama and there's no decision to be made at that exact moment. Then I'm somewhat sometimes waiting for my email to tell me what to do next, right? And um, yeah, so that's kind of the way I think about leadership and decision-making. Well, you, you made another decision recently that I would imagine unnerved a few people. You decided to sell your company. Yeah, for sure. It's the second company that I sold. The first company, I'll digress briefly because it's it's definitely newsworthy. So in 2007, no, sorry, in 2005, I sold my business. It was about 13 and a half years old or something like that at the time. And um, I, would, I was making a very good living. Uh, the business had grown to 100 people. I was making good money. Um, but of course, a liquidity event changes your sort of your wealth overnight, right? You know, because you get a lot of money for your business. I and my myself and my two business partners, we sold our business to a, a public company. And we ended up taking shares in the public company as the lion's share of the of the uh, purchase price. So we did not get a lot of cash. That ended up being a very, very bad choice on our mm -hmm. on our part, right? But I, you know, overnight I became this multi-millionaire, but also I was this large insider in the business because I own so many shares in the public company now because they've given me so many to buy my business that I couldn't sell the shares for I couldn't even start selling them for 90 days. And then I could only sell like one or 2% every 90 days for the first sort of three years or something. It was an insider trading law or, and right. um, to prevent us from dumping and, you know, pump and dumps, whatever, all this, you know, anti-scheming laws and whatever that occur in Canada. But that ended up being my my downfall because the, the company we sold to, we didn't spend enough time researching who was buying us. We They spent all sorts of time researching us and making sure our revenues were this and that and what have you. We just assumed, oh, well, they're a public company and they've got all these divisions that we've seen and they have a brand name. And and we didn't we didn't give it any thought. We thought we died and went to heaven. We're multimillionaires. And, you know, but of course, I was only a multimillionaire on like paper because I couldn't sell the shares to turn them into cash to buy sports cars and fancy houses. Right. So my life didn't really change. I, you know, I was kind of making the same amount of money I'd always been making. I was, so I was living the exact same lifestyle, but I was this multimillionaire. Right. Well, as I tell the story, it can get long winded. I, I'll just, I'll, I'll be brief, but the, within the first day of owning the business, they emptied our bank accounts took all the money, ran all the lines of credit up to max them out. And from that day forward, we started stretching vendors, not making payments. And we went from being people's number one customer to being the worst nightmare they've ever dealt with. And it was the horrible, horrible transition to go through. And I, you know, I only had so much I could do. I was really just an employee in this public entity that owned a lot of shares in the business, but it wasn't like I was on the board of directors. It wasn't like I ran the business at that level like oh the CFO did not you know rise to my bidding right and in within 18 months or so the company was put into receivership they closed our company i had to fire 100 people and mm -hmm. ultimately i was out of work and ultimately my shares went to zero and i had to start over and in 2007 and i went from multimillionaire to broke in one step, right? I mean, I wasn't totally broke. I'd save money over the years. But what I mean is from the the money I sold the business was the here today, gone tomorrow. And the shares were worthless. 
And I had to either get a job or start over. And that's when I created the second company, Gap Wireless, which is my initials, GP. And the A is the vowel that I needed in order to make a word. And um, much to the chagrin of the Gap Clothing Company, I'll, I'll add. Uh, the day, the year I started Gap Wireless was the same year that the Gap Clothing Company came out with the Gap Wireless Bra. And uh, that was a fun, um, <laughs> fun, uh, what do you call it, exercise in the in the trademark courts of Canada. And uh, we ended up ultimately winning and uh, keeping our name and all that and getting the trademark. But um, yeah, they were infuriated with us because we were always coming up on top of them in Google because our name is Gap Wireless, right? And, right. Um, but yeah, so I uh, I sold my company the second time in 2022, but this time it was to a much better company. We did all sorts of research on it. It was all cash, right? It was yeah. an all cash deal. Learned my lesson. And um, and now I'm learning, my new lessons that I'm learning today is, uh, you know, um, I was we were bought by private equity. So now I'm actually an employee with a company that's owned by private equity. And, you know, I'm not the... I'm not the, where the buck stops, right? I'm not the final word. Um, you know, I do manage my division and they've, they've brought other companies and brought them in under us, but still, I mean, there's a very big engine above me and, you know, there's a decision-making process and authority levels. And it's quite, quite a change and a transition for anyone to make, right. From being the top dog, you know, see to your pants, decision-making to having to rationalize and explain your decisions and some have your decisions <laughs> overridden. Right. And um, so it's, you know, it's interesting and I am learning a lot though. And um, you know, I'm sure this, this information I'll learn over these few years that I'm going to be working with them to be very valuable uh, part of my, my corporate education, if you will. Right. And um, along with running a business by yourself, not by yourself, but with my partner, but, and selling that business and, and what have you. Right. So, yeah. Well, tell me about a um, time where you feel like your, your leadership was kind of put to the challenge, almost like a white knuckled moment. In 2019, um, I realized that, you know, business goes up and down or what have you, but uh, we'd grown to 80 people. And I'd realized that, um, we were at a turning point in that, um, our service division climbing towers, installing antennas and things was at a crossroads and it was losing money. And my finance guy at the time had not kept us properly informed of how bad it had gotten. And sometimes time just goes by and you realize like, wait a minute, I was here and now I'm here and I'm here. Wait a minute. I'm where in terms of the finances and we were basically staring down the barrel of um, about $1.4 million in losses. And our company was not the size that can, uh, that could shoulder that kind of a loss, especially because we had a line of credit that we were using at the time. And there were covenants with the bank and to the, the crossroads of the decision and then an inflection point that you're asking about is that on the Friday, I went home to think about it on Monday morning, I came in and I called my business partner and I said, we're going to make some changes. And I said, Right now we have 80 people and when we're done, we'll have 29. Mm. And he's like, what? And, um, and I explained to him and, you know, we had been negotiating with a company about selling our service division. And we, we basically were able to, to get an agreement that day to that this guy would, would buy the service division. Uh, I use that word buy loosely because it was more like we gave it, but Nonetheless, all 40 people got a job, a smaller group. We were selling some drones and stuff. We sold that division to a U.S. company. It was a successful transaction. 
And we were able to reduce our headcount from, you know, 80 to 29, just as I said. But as I was telling my partner, he's like, when are we going to, this was eight o'clock in the morning, right? And he's like, well, when are we going to do this? And I said, by 10 a.m. we'll be done. And we were. And we called the guy about the business. Uh, we had this lead on selling the drone division. We, we took care of that. That took care of about six or eight people. I can't remember. And then the rest, we had to lay off a few people, but they all found gainful employment readily. And we went on from after 2019, after this um, adjustment or restructuring to have our, a banner year in profits. We wiped out all the losses We and turned the tables. And we went on to have two more banner years of profit profit uh, that we never would have had. We probably wouldn't have survived if I hadn't have made that decision. And then we sold the business sort of for what I feel is kind of like a record deal um, in terms of the timing of the 5G and rollout in Canada and the valuation of the business. And I feel we we hit the the peak of, of, of 5G value. Right now we're in a trough of telecom trough in Canada. And, and business is kind of down a bit. So I think we hit the number perfectly. And um, yeah, and so that's my white knuckle moment in uh, managing the business. You know, and I, th- and I think one of the challenges there is sometimes you have to do these cuts t- to make the other jobs secure. Exactly, yeah. And it's, and, and it's hard when you know you're impacting people's lives, but the... If you, if you don't, if you hadn't saved those 29 jobs. Yeah. Everybody would have, everybody would be gone. The business would be gone. The bank would have like flipped us on the covenants and we would have, wouldn't have been, we I guess we could have sold houses and stuff maybe to try to, but we would have been at that kind of a method of having to like guarantee the loans at a point. Cause it wasn't enough, wouldn't have been enough equity to cover the, the lines of credit that they wanted the guarantees. And, but we managed to turn it all around. Um, and we convinced the bank to loan us five and a half million dollars for this other deal with no collateral. I don't even know how we did that one. I'll have to write a book on that as well. Um, and we just convinced them through sheer passion of the business. We'd made the restructuring. We were back being profitable. And we said, now we need five and a half million for 90 days to do this deal. And they said, yes. And they gave us the money and we paid it back like, you know, 90, whatever, hundred days later and uh, it worked beautifully. And um, we never looked back. Yeah. Well, that's, that's encouraging. Now you said book, you you've got a book out yeah. called never sit in the lobby. What's that book yeah. about? So it's uh 57 tips on how to build a business and a career in selling. And it's sort of 57 anecdotes plus or minus from my career starting in 85 as a salesman that I started writing down rules that I learned from different people on how they became good salespeople. And there were rules to follow rules to avoid you know, all that kind of a thing. Right. And, um, and back in the eighties, I used to tell these and there's some funny stories behind them. And I tell them in an animated kind of a way people would laugh and they're like, Oh, you know, and then other people eventually asked me to speak at their companies and tell these. And then everyone's like, Oh, you should write a book. And of course, 25 years went by and then, but it wasn't until the pandemic that I finally sat down and said, I've got all these notes in this book. Now I'm going to write them down. I'm going to write a book. And I did during the pandemic. And, um, and so that's what I did on the weekends and, um, the, um, yeah. And, and, uh, I published it the same week that I, uh, sold the business, the timing, uh, it was not good timing for me. Right. Cause I would wanted to enjoy them both separately, but literally the same week that the transaction closed and we signed the papers for the selling the business, 
the book went live on Amazon. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was inter- interesting. Wow. Well, congratulations. How can people get in touch with you? Um, so my website's the best it's glennpoolis.com and on there are links to all my socials, super active on LinkedIn. So you can just link over, just go to LinkedIn and search my name and, um, and that's where I'm most active. And I'll, you know, if you reach out to me, I'll respond. And, um, but you can contact me on the website and uh, my other social media is there as well. So. And, and you're doing a lot of public speaking now. So if somebody, yep. somebody needs a, a speaker to convince their audience that 5G doesn't cause COVID. Yeah. That would be me. Yeah. All right. Uh, but more importantly on leadership. Uh, you've been through a lot and I appreciate you sharing that. You know, it, it's, I think it's encouraging for anybody who's struggling in business to know that it's not always a straight line, you know, yeah. to where they're going. And I just want to thank you for being on Leaders and Legacies today. Yeah. Thanks, Craig. Very happy to be here. This is Craig Andrews. I want to thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legacies podcast. We're looking for leaders to share how they're making an impact beyond themselves. If that's you, please go to alliesforme.com slash guest and sign up there. If you got something out of this interview, we would love you to share this episode on social media. Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone who would be a great guest, tag them on social media and let them know about the show, including the hashtag Leaders and Legacies. I love seeing your posts and suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss anything, please go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to my team. If you want to know more, please go to alliesforme.com or follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.